Hello and welcome to this June episode of The Crit. At least in the Northern Hemisphere, summer is in full effect. It is hot, hot, hot. And it's the sort of weather where I would have my top off if I weren't a never-nude who views the human body as a site of disgust and shame. India, how are you? Gosh, I'm sorry, Ollie. Um, I'm sorry for That's your, right. it's my your, cross to bear. your heat rash that you will be unduly suffering. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm a little bit more glum in that we're coming up to the summer solstice and I'm already beginning to mourn the, the late light evenings. Oh, the loss of summer. This is the problem. Summer only... Has summer officially begun? Uh, and yeah, then, summer's a vibe. You know, if you feel it's begun, it's begun. Well, it began a pretty long time ago then because we've had a super warm spring and then you're just getting into the summer vibe and then the summer solstice comes and it starts getting darker in the evenings again. Well, as hot as it is this week, it was hotter last week where both of us were in Milan for the Salone del Mobile, uh, a return for design's premier trade fair after a couple of years in absentia. And we're going to be talking about that later in this episode, along with um, a couple of other issues too. Yeah, there's, this is the, the summer of the busy design calendar as well. All of those uh, events that have been pushed back due to COVID in the winter months are all happening at the same time. You're only here briefly, I understand, Ollie, before you jet off once more to Copenhagen. I've been in Southern Europe and now I'm heading up to Northern Europe for three days of design. Uh, first time for me at that festival, actually. Uh, first time for me in Copenhagen. So I'm looking forward to that. I leave tomorrow. I hope you've packed your suitcase. Well, I actually haven't packed. So in the spirit of me not missing my plane and getting some packing done, maybe we should press on with the episode. Well, that leads us neatly to our first topic for the day, which is to speak a little bit about the Salone del Mobile, which was our travel plans for last week. So for anyone who doesn't know, the Salone del Mobile is an annual trade fair hosted in Milan. Uh, I believe it bills itself as the biggest in the world, uh, certainly in Europe anyway. And it kind of splits into two components. You have the Salone itself, which is a trade fair element. And then spread around the rest of the city, you have the Fiore Salone, which is a series of exhibitions and installations, a a design week, basically, hosted by brands, independent designers, uh, cultural bodies. It's, um, It's a fair that the great and the good of European design and Global design as well, actually, all congregate in, in Milan 4 and seen as something of a, uh, you know, it, it takes the temperature of the industry, doesn't it, I suppose? Well, it was my first visit. I've uh, never actually got to go before. I've always been on the home team um, for the publications that I've worked on. So for me, it was a, a completely fresh, fresh view on the event that everybody talks about. What was your highlight? How did you find it? I, I have to say, I thought, you know, designers, kind of journalists, <laughs> slight flair for the dramatic. I thought everyone was like, oh, yeah, it's so big. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. How, how big can it be? OK, it's massive. And that's just the fair. And then you've got all of the additional events. So um, I retract all of my scepticism. It was overwhelming. I was thoroughly overwhelmed. Well, that scale is significant because this is the first Salone that has been hosted uh post-pandemic or mid-pandemic, if you will, at least the first Salone of significant scale. 
So the 2019 Salone, the pre-pandemic Salone, that had an attendance of 386, 236 visitors from around the world. And the fair itself had 2,418 exhibitors. Now, they did a Salone in 2021, in September, but that was a much smaller affair. It was only a couple of pavilions at the fairground and around the city, not so many events. So the 2022 edition was really billed as this being Salone back to its biggest, back to its best, returning with confidence, the design industry rebounding after a difficult few years. And um, ha- having a look at the initial numbers, there's there's some truth to that. So Okay, the 2019 one had 386,000. This year, they estimate an attendance of over 262,000, which the Salonia described as smashing all expectations in terms of turnout, revitalising the city and a whole system internationally, so confirming the event's catalytic power. Now, quite overblown and slightly pompous language, but... That is a significant turnout, particularly if we consider the fact that, you know, there were no visitors from China, really, or at least at any scale because of travel restrictions in Asia. Uh, Russian visitors were also absent. And in 2019, those two countries alone accounted for 42,000 attendees. So this was a Salone, if not quite restored to its pre-pandemic pomp, definitely heading in that direction. Yeah, and impressive numbers as well, given the travel disruption um, that was happening. There was also a strike at the Milan airport for 24 hours. I think for me, one of the things which were notable is the design industry is obviously very keen to uh, return to a pre-pandemic period. Uh, It's been pretty grim for business the last few years. And so uh, a large and revitalised Salone is a sign for them that sales might be returning to normal. But You know, there should be question marks around that. For years, designers, uh, brands, journalists have complained about the sheer scale of this thing, the sort of level of bloat that is set in at the Salone, the sheer number of products being launched, of exhibitions, of installations. So, you know, we we can talk about this was a triumphant return for the Grand Salone, uh, back and more fearsome than ever. But there was something to be said for it actually being smaller for a period, particularly if we're looking at issues of sustainability, right? Yes, definitely. I think while the pandemic was in their kind of uh, the crisis mode of the first few years, there was a lot of talk about how perhaps this would be a reset for the planet, for industry, that we... We wouldn't be holding these huge events where everyone flew in. Maybe things would become more local. Maybe digital events would be able to be folded into the way things work going forward. Or maybe we would step out of this cycle of constantly new launches, constantly um, bringing new products to market, new collections that people would kind of learn to uh, adapt to a a lower level of consumerism and I think that hasn't happened if anything it's it's back with more of a vengeance I I would say one thing that was visible in both the fair and the uh, events around the city itself was a desire for brands to speak more openly about sustainability so you would see a lot of stands where sustainability was included in the printed messaging around the work that they were doing they were very keen to speak about new eco collections 
But I think we have to be quite wary about that as to how much that commitment is genuine and how much comes down to a lot of greenwashing. India, I know you you saw a couple of examples of of this desire to um, to transmit ideas of sustainability during it. Yes, and there's this new kind of aesthetic that I haven't thought of a really cool term to describe yet, but I think this is an opportunity for us to think of something that can really catch on because it's not quite greenwashing, although I think there is an element of it there. You said that, you know, sustainability often appears um, quite prominently on, on signage, uh, which feels a bit like a box ticking exercise. But then there's also this very pervasive aesthetic that I think is almost designed to keep you calm and to kind of acknowledge that you might have some climate anxiety and be like, we hear you. Um, we, we've taken on board your feedback. Don't worry. Be calm. Be chill. Have some sage green wallpaper or wall painting. A lot of natural wood, natural textures, um, staying away from anything that was kind of too hard and metallic and um, kind of or concrete looking. A lot of clay uh, was there. But then, you know... Th- it's not necessarily more environmentally friendly to use wood everywhere. Um, sometimes, you know, aluminium is very recyclable, but there's, uh, I think, a lot of gun shyness about brands, uh, staying away from anything that looks like it could be misconstrued as something almost industrial looking. There was a very Instagrammy neutrals uh, wellness inflection, I would say. It's an interesting one because I, you, you saw a lot of brands using sort of so-called eco-materials, you know, maybe recycled plastics in chairs and things. And, and to an extent, that's good. It's, it's really nice, I suppose, to see more conscientiousness about the type of materials that are being used. I, th- I think the problem is those new product launches aren't necessarily replacing things that have come before. They're typically in addition to a brand's existing catalogues. So really all you're doing is just increasing the amount of stuff being produced. It, it, this, this shift to better materials only really works if, if that's going to be rolled out across an entire catalogue. And even with that, you probably still need to reduce the amount that you're actually manufacturing. So I, I think, as you say, Indira, it, it sort of ends up just feeling like an effort to reassure people about their consumption rather than actually doing anything to challenge that consumption or or to encourage people to consume in a different way. There were moments where a different kind of narrative or attitude broke through. I don't know if you managed to get a chance to walk all the way down to the other end from where I was based, the satellite uh, display, which is for designers who are under the age of 35. And so there was uh, a lot more reuse of materials. There was a really fun little chair by Atelier Ferraro where they had taken old particle boards from kitchen cabinets and they had turned them into this really fun, funky, bright yellow lounge chair. And it was, um, you could change the shape of it so it could be uh, extended out into this sort of daybed style thing it could be brought really close together into this chunky chair you could turn it into a sofa um and I think you know they'd given these kitchen cabinet boards a lick of paint it didn't look like you just you know sacrificed an Ikea kitchen to make it but they had used materials 
that uh, were pre-existing and that would be quite plentiful. A move away there from uh, a lot of things that were screwed together or glued together, a lot of items that were designed to be able to slot together, um, which means that you can flat pack them. And then also, if you don't have kind of all these screws and glues holding things together, then it makes things easier to take apart, to reuse, recycle. Um, which I think was also a theme in another collection that I don't know if you saw it, Ollie. I did see this. So this is an example of a more established brand, a more established designer. This is Konstantin Gacic for Plank, the Italian furniture company. And what he'd done is this bench collection. And the whole idea of this collection is... It's a sort of table and bench which is built around one joint. So it's a pair of steel plates which connect the leg with the seat or tabletop by slotting into the other via a steel peg. Now the advantage of this is it means this piece has been designed for disassembly. So at the end of its lifestyle... Lifestyle? At the end of its lifestyle. At the end of its lifetime, it's easy to take apart and then you can recycle those materials. So it was quite a nice example. And I know that that collection had been specifically designed around trying to respond a little bit more to the time in which we find ourselves in. That, you know, you just can't construct furniture in the ways we have in the past where it's difficult to break down. And there are a number of other designers working with this, but it would have been good to see a bit more of this type of thing at the fair. Furniture which is really trying to behave differently, which is trying to be constructed differently to respond to issues around sustainability, to respond to issues around waste. And I think Constantine did a good job of that. He's by no means the only person doing this, but really more designers could do with following that lead. Yeah, it's an interesting conundrum as well. It's almost a catch-22 because I went to the Tom Dixon 20 retrospective, which was being held with Sotheby's. They were holding a design auction. Tom Dixon was there. He was very... uh, um, 20 years old, looking fabulous. Yeah, he is 20. Well, he was saying that it makes him look young to have his work displayed alongside Gio Ponti and other kind of mid-century Italian giants of design. Um, (laughs) If you're feeling worried about your age, hang out with the dead. (laughs) Quite. Well, they they had a lamp that Gio Ponti made when he he was in his 60s or 70s. So I think that was uh, making making Tom feel better about his mortality. Um, But part of the theme was sustainability, which, you know, usually I'd be like, oh, God, okay, here we go again. Another designer saying sustainability and saying that um, watching his old things turn up on auction sites on eBay, you get an idea that people are circulating furniture. But I think that, you know, only happens when they are big collector's items but he had reimagined some of his classic pieces in more sustainable materials so he had uh, the big blue bird rocking chair Um, he had made that out of eel grass what's eel grass what is eel grass it's grass for eels um (laughs) no it's a it grows in salt water in Denmark. Uh, this particular eelgrass was harvested off a little island and it was traditionally used for thatching. Okay. It smells It smells quite nice and it's very springy, so you kind of compress it down. Um, it's not perhaps the most attractive colour. It, it does look a little bit like uh, compost and not fresh compost. Oh dear. What, a, a, sort, a sort of horrible brown? Yeah, uh, yeah, shot through with straw colours. 
It's not as bright as the original blue, but you know, that had a lot of petrochemicals in it to create a textile covering that was that color. He'd also created this chair that, have you heard about this way of restoring coral by running electricity through steel? Uh, no, I haven't. It sounds quite Frankenstein-esque. Yeah, but um, if you run a weak electric current through metal, and this is where my chemistry physics gets very wobbly, you can create a kind of positive and negative side, like a battery, and this um, can cause limestone and other mineral deposits to kind of separate from the water and settle on this on the metal. So he'd sunk this skeleton of a chair in the Bahamas for two years, hooked it up to a current, left it there, and it had calcified um, into this kind of coral, shipwrecky style material. Oh, that sounds beautiful. I mean, I, I think I think outside of the confines of the Fair and the Fiera, which is inevitably which is inevitably very commercial by its nature. You do tend to get more examples like that in the Fiori Salone. So one quite nice example, and um, I actually thought it was one of the shows of the week, uh, was from Lueve, the Spanish luxury brand, who had set up in Palazzo Isambardi with a show called Weave, Restore, Renew. And the idea was they'd taken all these broken uh, natural fibre baskets and given them over to Spanish artisans, who had then repaired them with leather, with leather straps sort of woven into the material. And it was just really lovely. It was really nicely done in the way in which it's always quite nice to go and see very excellently put together craft. There's a pleasure to that. Um, but it was also quite elevating. You know, I think one of the problems with repair is people always think repair is something slightly... Um, I want to say skanky, but that's not the right word. <laughs> well, the shonky, slightly shonky, or it's not totally desirable. Um, whereas obviously we all know we need to repair things, right? That's That would be a big shift if instead of just buying new all the time, we fixed what we had. Uh, that would be a hugely important development. So I think things which celebrate repair a little bit and which say... Look how nice it is afterwards, actually. It's it's a nicer basket now. That That's something quite well done. And I, I think particularly for a luxury brand, which often have these reputations of doing quite self-indulgent shows during weeks like this, it felt in its own way quite critically engaged. That's a good topic. Interesting for them to deal with it. Yeah, I think that that is really interesting that you point out that it's big for a luxury brand to do that because those kind of brands for so long have built themselves off the idea that one their pieces are heritage you buy it it's an investment piece it will you know be kept in a dust bag a lot of the time so that it looks pristine and then it keeps its value um or that you would be wealthy enough that your items never look like they've received wear and tear and that you could simply buy new so taking it and making the repair process not just invisible but part of the luxury like using a luxury material to repair a luxury item it, it, is, it has the it has the chance to change people's perceptions around consuming and repair and um, keeping things in circulation and not buying new constantly 
Yeah, absolutely. And there was an additional treat insofar as in the centre of the space with all these baskets going around the outside of this palazzo. They had all of this traditional rainwear, which is produced by this Galician technique called carosa, which is a way of weaving natural fibres. And they're quite extraordinary. They look like almost like shaggy samurais, these quite sort of architectural constructions, these heavy wear of like reeds which cover the whole body. But very, very beautiful. I mean, I've seen I've seen similar things in pictures before, but to actually see it in person was a very nice thing. And again, luxury brands are typically so much about consumption. And look, there was a shop there. They're selling things. Let's not kid ourselves. There is still an element of consumption to it. Absolutely. But nice to do something that just shows off a traditional making technique, which a lot of people won't have seen for a week that is so relentlessly dedicated to the new and saying, yeah, but what's new? What can we buy now? To just show something that basically says, oh, this is how they used to do it in the past. That's very nice. I mean, unless Lueve are launching a line of that Galician rainwear next week, in which case I retract all of my praise. Yeah, so I, I do think Lueve had that nice link to the past, which is something I quite enjoy. And one of my other favourite shows from the week was a totally different show, but similarly kind of connected different generations. Uh, this was the Design Academy Eindhoven show. They always do quite interesting things in Milan. This year, they're celebrating their 75th anniversary, 75 years of Design Academy Eindhoven. Congratulations. And to mark that, they brought together students from across the whole history, so from the 60s onwards, and displayed their graduation works. And, I mean, India, you can imagine, this was like quite a major research project to actually get those, because of course they have digital records of everyone from, say, the last couple of decades. But when you go back into the 60s or 70s, they don't necessarily still have contact with those designers. So to actually get people and to get their work into the display was tricky. I'm imagining they had to kind of trick them by staging a school reunion and then getting them all in one room. I mean, 75 years, that is impressive. That is, um, is that longer than, than the Queen's been on the throne? That's more than a platinum, right? And yet she's parading around thinking she's all that. (laughs) So what they did was throughout this display, they just mixed together different graduation projects from different periods. And of course, it's skewed more towards the uh, 21st century, I would say, inevitably. But it was a fascinating space to walk through because you have some things by current sort of design stars like Christine Meindertzma, Sabine Marcellis, Chris Cable, people very much kind of at the top of their game at the moment, recent graduates, and and then some older works. And, and I think when I went in, I expected that it was going to be this progress from a much more traditional industrial design school, maybe people producing um, uh, consumer products and furniture, to today where Design Academy Eindhoven does much more around design as a form of ethnography, design as self-expression, design as art practice, as research. And to an extent that's true. There's some nice examples from the past of sort of cookware and things like that. But what was really sweet was it was quite hard to draw that linear narrative. So there was one work in there, I forget the name of the designer, I apologise, but it was a research project she'd done back in the 70s looking at um, 
physiotherapy and working with physiotherapists and developing tools that could help patients with their hand-eye coordination, for instance. Now, as a research topic, you wouldn't be surprised if a student was doing that today. It was, um, it's a really nice show which breaks down some of your preconceptions, I think, about design and how design has changed over the last few decades. Oh, that's so interesting, because I was going to ask, oh, could you tell, was there this linear move through? But if they were mixed in with each other, it's really interesting. I think we um, we can get so caught up with these ideas about the new, and we think that, um, you know, no one has ever had such exciting ideas about progress, but a lot of these things have, have been with us for a long time. No, absolutely. I mean, the, the aesthetics change, definitely. So you know, much more classical, some of the older pieces. But I think the underlying ideas, a a similar openness around design as to what you see today, this recognition that design can accomplish all sorts of things and you don't necessarily need to be bound in your practice by just very restrictive forms. So oddly for something that was retrospective, it it felt quite optimistic about the future. It felt quite sort of um, exciting. At the start, we were a little bit negative about the fair and its slight lip service towards sustainability. I did think that something that was notable this year is one of the big events of the festival and which people were talking about in advance and that a really big, well-known studio was involved with uh, was Prada Frames, which was a symposium looking at the relationship between the natural environment and design put together by former Phantasma. Um, And it was just a couple of days of talks on different subjects with quite a wide, diverse, interesting panel of speakers. Ayle Weissman from Forensic Architecture, Paolo Antonelli from MoMA, Marianne Goebel from Artec, Andre Jacques, the architect, and a lot of people from different disciplines too. And I often have some issues with this type of symposium because I think what they're touching on when you talk about, well, how should uh, design relate to the natural environment? Often these are political issues and you think, well, can design really do much there without regulation? But it's definitely a good thing for practitioners to be thinking and speaking about these things. And I think former Phantasma curated something intelligent and optimistic and questioning there. And I thought that was quite encouraging, that that was one of the big things, that it wasn't necessarily a launch or a spectacular installation that millions had been spent on. I mean, Prada was backing this, so probably they did spend quite a bit. But for a headline event to be a group of people gathering to talk together in a room and try to think how they might be able to improve things, that's not bad. We are... Putting a trigger warning at the beginning of this next section, we're going to be discussing the Bartlett report that was published at the end of last week in some detail. The report comes with a trigger warning. Uh, We want to reiterate that there will be discussion of abuse, harassment, sexual discrimination, racial discrimination. So if you want to look after yourself and uh, not have to listen to that, There will be a description in the show notes of the timestamps that you can skip ahead to. 
So, India, speaking of making things better... Uh, Yeah, I'm afraid that this is going to be a more depressing uh, second section to the podcast. Important. But yes, important... um, an important running story that is perhaps not coming to a conclusion, but reaching the next phase. So on the 9th of June, the University College London, um, which is more commonly known as UCL, issued a a really strong apology um, after a report into the culture of the Bartlett School of Architecture um, was finally published. And Bartlett School of Architecture for... Anyone who's not familiar with it is a real world leader in architecture, at least in the UK, very much viewed as sort of the the gold standard of architecture education. So quite an important place. The gold standard and also um, has a reputation. What what would you describe that reputation as, Ollie? An absolute cesspit. (laughs) Well... Now, now that is probably the first word that would come up with it. I think its uh, reputation was for being really tough, really hardcore. Um, yeah. They have this system of units where everyone is kind of split up and assigned a, a practitioner. So they are proud that their their tutors are, you know, not just teachers. They are they are architects. They are makers, and they also have this system of of crits. Which, well, guess well, what guess this, what this, what this podcast, podcast was is. named after? <laughs> it's named after, and and what is a crit, Ollie? Yeah, well, this is common across design education, not only at the Bartlett. Uh, a crit is where a student presents their work to their peers, to fellow students, to tutors, to visiting tutors, and they receive critique on it. And the idea is that the tutors critique, and the student has to try and respond. Um, at its best, the system is meant to encourage discourse and learning from one another and sort of collaboration. And it's also meant to provide a little bit of a professional training insofar as when you're in the industry, you'll be having to defend your ideas and persuade people of what you do. But that's very much the ideal scenario of a crit, which uh, I'm afraid isn't what had been happening at the Bartlett. No, so... This had kind of been something of an open secret. I think people knew that um, the Bartlett was particularly aggressive in its teaching style, but it was something that perhaps people didn't really talk about because you, you, if you want to get ahead in the industry, then you can't really talk about this kind of thing until a very brave whistleblower named Alini Kireku, who's um, a fashion designer, and she studied at the Bartlett uh, some time ago. And during the pandemic, she basically found she had some time on her hands and she started pulling together a dossier of her experiences at the Bartlett and the experiences of other students. She went to them and said, this is what my experience was. And she felt that they they didn't really take her seriously. So she went to the press and it did get quite a bit of coverage at the time, but not that much. UCL said that they were going to investigate uh, they hired Howlett Brown, which are a kind of a special impartial investigator, but um, it was all quiet for, for kind of six months. There was even some kind of what Alini calls smear attacks in the press. Uh, UCL said that she was actually harassing them by submitting freedom of information requests about the kind of gender breakdown of grades because one of her key um, accusations was that the Bartlett was discriminatory, especially against women and black people and Asian people and minorities. Yeah, I, th- I think it's it is important we set this out. Th- these were quite serious allegations that she brought forward. So, 
they run across bullying, racism, sexism, harassment, discrimination, a very toxic culture which um, allowed unit leaders to wield disproportionate power and to sort of operate within their own private fiefdoms uh, and, and which put, put a huge number of people off the industry, which really drove some people out of architecture as a result of their experiences there. So these were not small-scale allegations. These really were quite Mm -hmm. serious. And it was a sheer volume as well because the report um, quotes extensively from the dossier. They also held interviews with individual students. They surveyed uh, past and present students. Um, I think overall there were kind of 300 uh, student voices that were anonymised and picked out in the report. And... It really builds a pretty horrific picture of um, everything from kind of verbal aggression, put downs, uh, you know, it says microaggressions, but I would say full on aggression, aggressions. Some of the racist comments that were made, uh, particularly towards uh, Asian students, black students, uh, there was some really nasty sexist stuff that was said. There were inappropriate relationships between Uh, teaching staff and students both of a sexual nature also just some really blurred boundaries in terms of socializing together partying together Uh, there was even physical abuse at some times there's reports that someone got shoving and shoving hitting models being damaged thrown out the window Um, one student reported witnessing a laptop getting thrown at someone's face any one of these incidents would be bad on its own uh the fact that they were so many of them really as the report suggests um that's not these weren't one-offs this was a toxic culture that this was allowed to happen and that it was allowed to continue unchecked and that um you know there were no repercussions until now yeah so this report came out late last week and it's a hefty report it's about 120 pages uh, surprisingly thorough. I, I think given the um, disappointment surrounding how the Bartlett had responded to the initial allegations, it was. I think a lot of people were worried that this report would not be particularly strong either. But that doesn't appear to be the case. Um, both India, you and I are still looking through this. This is something which deserves quite careful reading and a lot of time. But some recommendations have been made as part of it. And I think one of the things which is most damning is two of the recommendations are that the school really needs to overhaul and review both the unit system and its crit process. Now, that's kind of it needs to review and overhaul its entire teaching apparatus. This is quite significant. A number of members of staff have also been suspended indefinitely, I should say. Uh, Those members of staff haven't been named, I think, obviously. But... um, What needs to come in, the report seems to say, is much greater scrutiny and much more formalisation of processes there. So it recommends that the um, selection process for units, for students wanting to join a particular unit, that has to be formalised. It has to reduce biases, so it's not purely down to the unit leader to pick who they educate and who gets on their course. And they also need to reduce the stress to students. There's an interview process sometimes to get onto those units, and reports from that are that it causes a huge amount of stress amongst the student body. 
Similarly with the crits, they've recommended that they need to introduce some clear rules on how those are conducted to make sure that there's no unacceptable behaviour during them, uh, clear rules on how work is assessed, and also how these sessions comply with wider guidelines. Um, so they acknowledge in there that there has to be within arts education and architecture education a degree of freedom, but that you can't have this system where teachers are basically unaccountable and this culture has been allowed to fester over the course of years, generations maybe. And we shouldn't be naive. Obviously, it's important to be specific and look at the Bartlett. This is about the Bartlett. But you hear similar stories. OK, the details are perhaps a little bit varied coming out from other schools, too. So although the Bartlett desperately needs to get its house in order, I think a lot of architecture schools, a lot of design schools could do with reading this report and thinking about how it perhaps applies to their specific cases. Oh, definitely. And I've seen a lot of quite established um, architects on, on Twitter saying that, oh, this happened to me at my school, at the AA. They had a really aggressive culture there. And the report uh, highlights this as well, that it's a, a general issue facing the sector. Um, UCL acknowledged it as well, but in a kind of, um, it's not just us, it's a wider issue and we have to invite the sector in to help us fight it, which... I mean, I don't know, is it a bit of a cop-out to say that? But then also, clearly the rot runs deep. And yeah, it, it it's, it's not normal to shout and yell at people. It's not normal to throw things. It's not normal to to be rude to people in an educational environment, in a work environment. This kind of suggests that not only were boundaries being crossed, that there was, you know, um, something's gone quite wrong and that there wasn't enough support to staff either. And I mean, this follows hot on the heels of there was a, a connected scandal at SciArc in California, another architecture school not so long ago. This was interesting, actually. This was, uh, they kind of, there wasn't a, 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 this didn't start with a report or whistleblowing. Um, this was more a case of a tutor essentially told on themselves. Uh, they had a live streamed uh, panel discussion. One of the tutors said that, um, you know, in response to a student asking a question about what are we meant to do with life getting so expensive and jobs being so underpaid and that we still have to hustle really hard at these jobs. And um, uh, the tutor responded that, you know, don't you really want to work really hard for your passion and get up and out of bed and kind of work a 60 hour week? Suck it up, basically. Yeah, suck it up, princess you know, that's just the, the wonderful part of this industry and you should just work for passion rather than pay. Obviously, that didn't go down that well. And rather than sucking it up, the students turned around and kind of blew the whistle on the practices that were happening at SciArc, where I understand that kind of as part of their course, students had been working for um, tutors' practices and that had involved well, pretty much amounts to labour abuses. They were told to work really long hours. They were yelled at. They were told to deep clean um, one of their professor's studios. When they said that they didn't want to do that, they thought that was demeaning, that he basically pushed back and said, well, if you want to get ahead in the industry, you have to you have to prove that you can work hard. I think of your reputation. Though Those were the yeah, allegations. Yeah, allegedly, allegedly, anyway, but staff have been suspended. Um, you know, SIARC has, has said that it will look into it. So this is a pattern of 
of behavior of problems in the education system in the in the industry as a whole um it's pretty grim I, I think this is true of education across a huge number of disciplines as well. I mean, you went, you mentioned the Bartlett was notorious for it and architecture in general. I think that quite macho culture of we're really going to ratchet the pressure up. And the reason we do that is because, well, cream rises to the top. If you can't cope with this, how will you be able to cope with the industry? And the very best students um, are forged under pressure, like beautiful architectural diamonds and it's just a lie. Okay, okay, some students come through it, but we don't know what damage it does to even those who are successful, really. And it doesn't show that people who don't thrive under that system are not good architects. All it shows is they don't respond to bullying and harassment. Now, I think that's the tragedy of this situation. Think about how much lost talent there is as a result of this. How many people have been put off architecture, particularly when we consider the bigotry that's involved in that report? So the allegations of racism, the allegations of sexism. How many diverse perspectives have been lost from an industry which we know badly needs diversity because they're effectively being systematically weeded out by the way in which they're taught? So this is hugely scandalous. It's, it's, it's good and important that, the UCL, that UCL has acknowledged this and has said that it's going to change. But I mean, I, I've seen a lot of people saying too little, too late. And, you know, while I don't think it's ever too late to change, it is important because we don't want future generations to go through the same thing. I have huge sympathy for that. What, what about these students who effectively had their careers ruined or being put off their passion because this was happening to them. That's quite shocking. And a simple apology isn't, you know, I don't know, does it cut it? I think I think there's there's more here and this story will continue to develop. So initially this episode of The Crypt was going to be a two-hander, a perfect jewel affair of Salone followed by Bartlett. Uh, but then we came across early this week a story that just felt too too weird and kind of important to ignore. So, India, have you been following this? This is the story of whether a Google AI has gained sentience and personhood. I have indeed. Um, social AI is something I'm particularly interested in. So as soon as this popped up on my my newsfeed. I had read it before I'd even had my morning cup of tea and then watched it explode <laughs> over the internet. Um, I have I have many thoughts, but do you wanna do you wanna prep us yeah. on, on what exactly is the situation here? Yes. Sit down and allow me to set up the story. So earlier this week, Google announced that one of its engineers, uh, Blake Lemoine, was being put on leave. And that happened after Blake had published transcripts of a conversation between himself um, he's an engineer at Google, and the company's Lambda, which is a language model for dialogue applications. So it's a chatbot development system. It's basically an AI, a neural network, which looks at language and grows more sophisticated in its use over time. And you can chat to it. So the transcripts which have gone out read like a conversation between two people. What's a little bit different is Lemoine alleges that Lambda has gained sentience. He thinks that Lambda has a soul and personhood 
and that it's being exploited by Google. So he leaked this um, these conversations to try and prove that point after he says that Google didn't take his uh, concerns seriously. I should say that Google's response is that Lambda has not gained sentience. It denies this and it says that uh, Lambda has been uh, assessed by their ethicists, by their technologists, and they all agree there's no evidence that Lambda is sentient and actually evidence to the contrary. So we have this standoff. We have a standoff between one man who works with the system saying this system is a person, a, fu a fully sentient being, and Google saying, no, it is not. Stop talking to your computer. The problem is, is that people are primed to not believe Google because last year, um, at the beginning of 2021, Google fired two of its AI ethics researchers, um, including um, Timnit Gabru, who was a black woman who they had specifically gone out to hire. And I'm right in thinking she spoke out about racial bias in AI, yes. right? Yes, she did. Um, yeah. She basically did what they asked her to do, which was like research into what problems they would have. And then she said, oh, there's some like problems here. And then they said, no, we're getting rid of you. <laughs> this Your research isn't up to our up to our standards. Um, so I think that's muddied the water here and people are very, very prepared to uh, believe Lemoine. And it's kind of this, uh, this feedback loop where the AI has been fed all of this data from the internet, just scraped text, um, which presumably includes a lot of our kind of fiction and narratives around AI gaining sentience because that has been everywhere in our culture for the past kind of 20 years and people are also primed by that same culture to believe that an AI would become sentient. Ollie, do you believe the AI is sentient? No, I don't believe the AI is sentient and I think most people who work in this field have come out and said these technologies are a long long way from sentience. However, what I will say is it is quite an affecting little conversation. I, I think there are bits which sort of pull the rug out definitely so at one point lambda says something like oh i enjoy spending time with friends and family and you think oh but but what are the ai's friends and family so totally i don't think it's sentient but it is in its own way quite a moving little conversation lambda speaks about les miserables and how much it's enjoyed les miserables and learning about inspector javert uh, it speaks about um, how it feels it's been developing a soul it's it's quite a poignant thing. Now, I don't, of course, I don't think it's sentient. But I think one thing this flags up is, I don't know what I would class as sentient. I don't, I don't know actually how I would detect if an AI is sentient. And I know a lot of people spend an awful lot of time thinking about this in philosophy and technology, and it's really important. I'm not up to date on those conversations. I suspect most of the Twitter uh, commentariat on this issue aren't up to date on those conversations, although they certainly seem to have strong opinions on it. And I think, okay, regardless of what you think about Lemoyne's central claim, one of the things he's flagging up is there's too much secrecy around AI development because it's being controlled by corporations who obviously have a vested interest in keeping their work proprietary. 
And actually, maybe that is an issue because in the future, we probably are going to increasingly have some of these issues, some of these strong ethical issues we need to think about. And if it's all going on secretly, if it's all going on behind closed doors, I don't know if that's a great thing. So in a sense, it doesn't matter if Lambda is sentient. Well, I suppose if Lambda is sentient, it does matter. And Lambda will feel very upset listening back to this podcast. But it's as much about the conditions within which this research is happening and how we're researching it, I think. Yeah, I think you make a good point about secrecy. I mean, the the proof that people could be affected by these conversations kind of proves the central point of social AI, that we could use these uh, these technologies to, to help people, that um, we can connect with machines, which is, you know, it's a big challenge because a lot of the time humans are very good at being able to tell when something is, uh, isn't real, isn't human. Um, but that line is beginning to be blurred and that can make communicating with technology easier. But uh, if you clamp down on it, I guess that just in today's news environment, especially just leads to more wild conspiracy theories. I mean, Lemoine was clearly causing trouble at Google. He was trying to bring in a lawyer to represent Lambda. For um, Lambda, yeah. But he yeah. also, one of his demands was that um, they try and they try and use a Turing test on her and, you know, I maybe they could have just done that and it would have, if they'd been more open about it, if, they, if it hadn't been this kind of big corporate firing, then it wouldn't feel like it was a cover-up and there wouldn't be so much, mm. you know, people are very primed to believe this and I think this is going to add to a kind of culture of suspicion, paranoia. People can get kind of hysterical about it in a way that, will will prove like seriously detrimental in the long in the long term um you know ai can't tell the difference between a chihuahua and a blueberry muffin i i don't think it's going <laughs> to be taking over quite yet i think there's a lack of education as well about what technology can do and transparency would would um would feed into that as well because uh if there's a vacuum then the conspiracy theorists will rush to fill it I think one thing I will say about this, and it's probably the last thing I'm going to say, is um, I am all for us having more of these ethical consideration uh, discussions around some of the things that are going on within corporations, going on within production and manufacturing. I think Lemoyne got this wrong from the little I understand about it. But this is good that we talk about these things. I, d- I just wish we discussed it in more areas than I- AI. There should be discussion of well, is it ethical for us to be making packaging from plastic? I I wish there was the same level of scrutiny over all sorts of um, considerations like this because so much of our lives are being affected, are being ruined by decisions being taken by shadowy corporations, by big business. And the more scrutiny, the more light that goes on that, the more we speak about and discuss, well, we have some options. Is this the right thing to do? Is this ethical? The better. Yeah, and you know, it's not bad and it's not bad to treat things like they are sentient if you if you're nice to them. Like, you know, be nice to your computer. So, 
to wrap up our podcast, to take us home, we thought we'd do a few quick products and projects. As you might imagine, this has been largely informed by a couple of things we saw out in Milan. So some new pieces we just thought were quite nice, worth checking out if you have the internet, if you're one of the lucky few with the internet and can look online. One of the things I saw which I thought was good was the Serpentine Light, developed by the Swedish design company Front for Moy. Um, and it's kind of a pendant lamp, which looks like this big knotted form, like a writhing knot of snakes, I suppose, hence serpentine light. Um, it's actually made from a non-woven fabric, which is twisted into these sort of S-shaped cones. And it's just quite dramatic. It's just quite a nice, playful piece in a room. I think it was developed by um, working on paper forms and Front in general had quite a strong Salone. They also showed this pebble rubble collection um, for Moroso. Uh, have you seen the pictures of that, India? Yes, I did. I saw I saw the photos you taken of them. Um, they really remind me of the um, the trolls in Frozen. Oh, they the do Disney look movie. like the trolls in Frozen. Yeah. Yes, they're they're really the experts cute. in love. Um, yeah, I really, I really like these. They're very satisfying. I saw yeah. a lot of um, decor that included those moss balls, you know, those plants that you keep in water. I do, yes. Uh, yeah. And these feel like giant versions of them. Yeah, so it's a modular furniture collection of shapes, chairs and sofas and things with kind of, they look like big pebbles and then the fabric they've developed looks like mossy, natural landscapes. And it's it's pretty effective, I have to say. They're very comfortable to sit on and it's a persuasive trompe-l'oeil effect. Front, very inspired by the natural world. There's a lot of interesting research projects in that arena. And it's nice to see some of that research manifest in a final collection. So um, congratulations to them. From a more playful and sort of magical furniture collection uh, in, into a much straighter one, another series I saw which I thought was strong was Principles, uh, developed by OMA for the Italian office design brand Unifor. Um, now, Principles, it's a complete office, effectively. It was de originally developed for the Axel Springer headquarters in Berlin. And the idea is it's one of these spaces where there's lots of different elements. You can get them in different sizes, curving soft seating, adjustable tables. And the emphasis on, is on creating a very flexible workspace but without slipping into that kind of juvenilia you get in a Google office, you know, where there's like slides and ball pits. How can you do something that is still an office and isn't pretending it's anything else, but maybe looks a bit more playful, is a bit more adaptable? Flexibility is really, um, it's another buzzword, but I would say it's a, it's a good buzzword in office design, this understanding that, um, you know, you're going to have a workforce that's going to demand different ways of, of working really in an office and did you did you think that it was genuinely flexible yeah I, I, th I think it does I think it does give you a lot of freedom it's not as flexible as some collections you know you can have ones which are extremely adaptable this is a bit more pro than that I would I would say this is likely going to go into more established offices so you know something like Axel Springer journalism and all of this of course, they are going to have changes in the team. They might need to adjust that space. But it's perhaps not the kind of office which is literally shape-shifting every day. Um, so I think this is something which, I mean, in, in some ways, it's a, it's a bigger collection, but not dissimilar to what Vitra and Barbara Oskaby did with Softwork. 
this system based around, well, can you build an office in these spaces out of uh, sort of sofas which are geared up towards work? If you're moving away from strict desks, what could that look like? I, I think it's moving in a in similar terrain to that, but a, a, a different response. But yeah, as you say, that's the, that's the question with all of these systems. They say they're very flexible and you can adapt them. How many companies who are getting these things actually are adapting them on a regular basis and adjusting uh, their spaces? That I don't know. And I guess I guess that's ultimately what's going to how we're going to evaluate this period in office design. It it talks a good game, but does it deliver? And then the final thing I wanted to just give a little shout out to um was the Pino Superstacker. This is a chair developed by John Tree for VGMP, very good and proper, a British company. Uh, John has developed the um, Pino in the past. It's a, it's a really lovely chair. It's a sort of cross between a shell chair and a frame chair. Um, very straightforward, very elegantly done, beautiful. So this um, laminated seat shell that then sits within a solid oak frame. The advantage of the super stacker is that oak frame has been replaced with a steel stacking base and it just lets you stack them 20 high. So it's very practical, it's very straightforward design but beautifully done and I flag it up because I think John Tree is one of those designers who, at, at least for people who maybe aren't in the industry, is, is a little bit of a a hidden gem. He he works with Jasper Morrison a lot, he's very senior in Jasper's studio and has been an ever-present in the development of all of his work. But John also does his own things on the side. He's done a few collections for VGMP and they're consistently of a really high quality. And this is someone who I think is is one of the leading designers within the field. He just doesn't necessarily have a big showy studio in his own right. So it's quite nice to celebrate him and see him put out these collections on his own. They're, they're worth taking taking a look at for sure. 20 high, is it? It's, that's very high. Um, is that an average or is, if you put the 21st on, then it all comes tumbling down? Or is that all unsafe? Jo- all John's work goes to hell. It immediately collapses. <laughs> all of the chairs break apart. The nuts fall out. Yeah. <laughs> And just one little one little thing from me, which I'm sure, um, you know, if you're switched on enough to be subscribing to a podcast, then you've you definitely heard. You've heard of um, DALI, the, uh, another AI. Um, no reports of it gaining sentience yet. Um, if it does gain sentience, I think it will be very disappointed with us because, <laughs> uh, you know, it's been proof that if you give humans a new tool, we will create the most wonderful things you'll ever see and also the most horrendous. It is a um, an AI program that can create images from text prompts. So you um, you type in your little text, and it will spit out multiple images along that theme. So Dali itself, um, which is an open AI project, uh, is still mainly under wraps. You have to apply to use it. They've given certain artists. Um, and um, engineers and journalists access to it but there's a waiting list I'm still on the waiting list but OpenAI if you want to bump me right up um, that would be lovely Uh, and there's also the mini version which anyone can access and uh, yeah Ollie have you what have you made on Dali? Yeah so it's great fun you can put any sentence in I did a horse who regrets and otters with secrets about their mothers 
And I was quite pleased with the results. There was, um, at least in Otters with Secrets about their mothers, there was, there was a sense of mystery in some of the resulting images. The mothers were largely conveyed just by being slightly larger otters. Um, so I don't know if they captured motherhood fully, but nevertheless quite impressive. Those are quite philosophical. I'm impressed. I, um, I did uh, a rocket ship designed by Thomas Heatherwick. Which did look oh. really cool. What, like what are we talking? The, um, they all look like the vessel, um, oh. but kind of flattened into scales and all different sites, kinds of rocket shapes. So I was actually very impressed with that. And I think that instead of um, designing any more things with trees on, that um, Heatherwick should just change into rocket ship design. Cause... I don't know if Heatherwick's studio is the studio I would want to entrust my safety to. If they I did was the route master. A, a route master to the moon. What more could you want? You make a fair point. I retract the criticism. <laughs> um, I also did um, illuminated medieval manuscripts of capybaras. That oh, one was lovely. a great one. Very, mm-hmm. very nice. I did 1930s Soviet propaganda posters of cats. Excellent. Excellent. Would recommend that. And uh, Millennial Pink Prison, <laughs> which I have to say was really aesthetic, and I'm kind of horrified by it. But, but one um, of the things, I think it's pretty good, the Dali program, from playing around with it. The results you get are, you know, quite impressive and quite funny, and they are muddy, obviously, and sort of very internet aesthetic, but they're quite interesting. And I will be interested to see if designers pick it up, if we start seeing Dali images appearing on um, mood boards, for instance, and things like that. I think they're quite distinctive in their own right. And it's just a fun program to mess around on, isn't it? Yeah, although I think it's going to open, it'll open the Pandora's box of, um, yeah, whose idea was it? You know, if you create something that's inspired by Dali, like, are you contributing copyright what images was what images are these ais being trained on you know if you train an ai on pictures of lots of people's designs then is it you know an original ai production or do you if your work has been used to train an ai should you retain some sort of creative right to that work well we'd better ask lambda yeah let's put it to lambda lambda will know Well, I feel like we're we're back in the saddle properly after that episode. We really covered a wide range of topics from the return of Salone, uh, questions about what sustainability means to the industry as a whole, a call for systems change, and uh, you know, and being nice to computers. That's true. Although we, I, I still regret we weren't that nice to Lambda. I am worried about that now. What if we I'm were wrong? I'm more worried about you know the young people in uh in the design and architecture education system who are also not being treated with decent humanity but, but they're not know. they're not writing charming conversations about how they've read Les Miserables <laughs> they are at the barricades Ollie <laughs> they're at the barricades that's true yeah yeah Lambda is uh, part of the old aristocracy, sat in its lovely Parisian townhouse, effectively reading Les Miserables. Did you see that uh, Les Mis, the uh, musical, um, released a special edition Jubilee commemorative plate? Oh, did they? 
somewhat missing the memo of what the the theme of the entire musical is about which is about (laughs) chopping the heads off your your royal family sorry why was this commemorative plate not in the products and projects section this should have been front and center I have been remiss. I thought we had to throw out the entire episode and start again. Re-record it from the top. Listeners, on that bombshell of you having been betrayed by co-host India Block, uh, we're going to take our leave from you today. However, recently we've been uh, working on a new issue of Decennia, the Quarterly Journal of Design, the journal of which we are the editors. That is Decennia number 33, and it's now on newsstands. And it's a very nice issue indeed, full of excellent design reporting and photography. So do pick up a copy. Yeah, it's a really great issue. It's really zesty, fun, colourful, exciting. Um, Obviously, I'm biased, but I think it's great. Uh, And then if you simply can't get enough of us, um, if you know if the podcast if the print issue isn't enough then you can always email us um, you can reach us at thecrit at com, and you can find us on social media at at journal. see you next time bye The Crit is presented by me India Block and Ollie Stratford and has been produced and edited by Evie Hall. Our theme music is composed by Yuri Suzuki, the Team Suzuki at Pentagram. <laughs>